open up your Bibles now to Mark, Mark chapter 1, actually. I'm not going to preach from there, but before we read our passage this morning, I want to uh, help situate our story in the flow of the larger book. And I want to point out to you how Mark introduces his gospel. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is Mark all about? What is Mark trying to accomplish in his gospel? He's trying to convince you of this very thing, that Jesus is Christ, is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. And so what we have before us is 16 chapters attempting to prove this very truth and unpack the meaning of this very truth. And how does Mark accomplish this goal? Well, he presents to us in three acts kind of a argument for the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and He is the Messiah. Three different acts. Each act moves Jesus to a new geographical location. Each act has a particular purpose. And so the first act is chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the middle of chapter 8. It's mostly in Galilee. And what Mark is trying to do is demonstrate that Jesus is the authoritative Christ. So there's lots of miracles. You'll remember this first section. It shows that Jesus has authority, that he's Lord over creation and so forth. The second act starts in the middle of chapter 8 and goes through the end of chapter 10. This is the section we just finished last week. It's mostly in Gentile regions. And this is where Mark is clarifying what Jesus being the Christ means. Well, notice there's very few miracles in this middle section. There's lots of teaching on Jesus being the suffering Christ and what it means to follow in the footsteps of the suffering Christ. That's the second section. And then there's the third section. This is the section we're about to start. So we're moving from demonstrating uh, that he is the Christ, from clarifying that he's the Christ. And now what do we see in this third section? He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, Jesus, you've said a lot of stuff about you being the Christ. Let's see now. Lots of conflict in this section, even judgment in this section. Things are ramping up and moving towards the cross. And we've gotten through about, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of the gospel of Mark. Isn't it telling that the last third is about one week in the life of Jesus? It's Passion Week, and it starts, of course, with Palm Sunday. So open up to Mark chapter 11. We're going to read the first 11 verses here in just a moment. Here's Passion Week. It's interesting also, you know, only two of the Gospels have the Christmas account, but all four have Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. Isn't that interesting? Christmas is a big deal. The incarnation of Christ, of course, is a big deal, but according to the Gospel writers, it seems like this week, Passion Week, is really, really important. So we're starting the section that tries to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, the Christ, the Messiah. Now, why does Mark need to do this? Why does he need to prove this? Well, it's because Jesus is the most misunderstood person in history. You agree? Consider what we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark. Everyone has been misunderstanding Jesus. Starts, of course, with the Pharisees and the scribes. Of course, they're going to misunderstand him. He's just a nuisance. He's a distraction to what they're trying to accomplish. But what about the crowds? 
They saw Jesus as a teacher, as a magician, as a healer. But more than that, I don't know. And then, of course, there's his disciples. Even his disciples were Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. They kind of see, but they don't fully see what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. So many in Mark's gospel are portrayed as not fully understanding who Jesus is. In our passage today, we're going to see the vision of Messiah Jesus is presenting and the vision of the Messiah the people are receiving. It's not quite the same. There's some overlap in there, but it's not quite the same. Let's read our passage together. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside the street, outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them, just as Jesus has said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of this passage. You'll see it on the screen. Also, if you want to open up your uh, bulletins, you'll see a, a place for notes. You'll see the main point written at the top left-hand page. You'll see on the right side at the bottom, not only the next passage that we're going to be looking at, and that's going to be 2 Kings next week. We have a guest preacher, but you'll also see uh, some of the resources that I've used. So I looked at uh, Hughes and, and DeYoung and Meyer's work on this, and it's important for you to know as well. Okay, so what do we have here? Here's the main point of the passage. I'll read it to you guys. Welcome and worship the real Jesus, the messianic, humble king of the nations, not the narrow Jesus of your imagination. You know, it's not just the ancient Jews that had trouble with understanding and comprehending who Jesus really is. We struggle with this too sometimes, don't we? And so I want to bring before you from this passage two messianic visions Two messianic visions. The first is the Messiah Jesus is presenting, and then we're going to get into the Messiah the crowds or the people we're receiving. So first, the the Messiah Jesus is presenting, and and put your eyes on verses 1 through 6. Now, for Jesus, all roads have led to Jerusalem and eventually, of course, to the cross. He's at the end of a long journey that has begun probably about nine months prior to this, when he purposefully began to kind of zigzag through Galilee and Samaria and Perea and Judea, he's ministered in at least 35 different towns, timing the journey perfectly so he would end up in Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus knows that thousands of Jewish pilgrims will be arriving in the city just as he and his disciples are coming into the city. And so, friends, this is all very, very purposeful. Everything he does in this story is deliberate. Notice, he travels through two towns, Bethphage and Bethany, 
on the east side of the city. It's near the Mount of Olives. Now, why did Jesus choose this route? Maybe it's the shortest route or the scenic route or it avoided, you know, the most construction. Actually, Zechariah 14 speaks of the Messianic prophet coming to Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus is choosing this route. He's saying something as he's choosing this route. Then, of course, there's the colt, the donkey, and all these instructions to his disciples about securing this colt. Now, what is that about? Are these kind of just random story details? No, Jesus knows there's a particular colt. He knows where it is. He knows its history. No one has ever sat on this colt before. He even tells them what's going to happen. Hey, if someone asks you, what are you doing here? This is what you should say. And sure enough, it all happened just like Jesus said. Look at verse 6. They answered them just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. It's another subtle yet powerful demonstration that Jesus is king. And Jesus needs this cult because the scriptures needed to be fulfilled. What scriptures? Well, Pastor Dick, ooh, called you pastor. Used to be our pastor, still wonderful brother, Dick. <laughs> so I used to say Dick read this passage for us and prayed over this passage, and he made these connections right in his prayer. So this prophecy speaks of the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Numbers 19 and Deuteronomy 21 suggest that animals that had not been ridden were sacred. They were set apart and thus especially fitting for a king. You know, you don't get the old jalopy out for the king, right? You get the brand new car for the king. This is a special donkey. It's set apart for God uh, for this very purpose. I want you to also notice, and this is kind of a detail that we often miss, I want you to notice the repetition of the word tied in verses 2 through 5 in particular. Five times tied, T-I-E-D, is used. Now again, is this kind of a, just a random story detail? No, I, I think this is very purposeful. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is blessing his 12 sons just before he dies, and to his fourth son, Judah, he says that the scepter will never depart from his house and that a tethered donkey would be the mount of this Messiah. Jesus, friends, is deliberately saying all this stuff. Now, you might think I'm crazy, Godwin. What do you mean? Really? Is he kind of putting all this stuff together just to present himself as a particular kind of Messiah? My answer is yes. Listen, friends, the ancient Jews knew their Old Testaments they didn't have Xboxes and TikTok and Joe Burrow and Netflix to distract them. They were very familiar with these sorts of passages. They understood that Zechariah 9 and Genesis 49 carry with them messianic expectations. Jesus is being super purposeful. He knows he's a certain kind of Messiah. And in every aspect of this story, Jesus is setting things up to present himself as the Messiah. I mean, he's, he's carefully ordered everything, even before this story. Up to this point, he's purposefully kind of withdrawn from the crowds. We've seen him do that on a number of occasions. He's asked those he healed to keep things kind of hush-hush. Don't tell everybody about me. But here, starting in chapter 11, Jesus is going public. Now he starts to court danger, and he does so with calculated purpose. What can we learn from this? What's the lesson here? Well, simply put, Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is 
king. It's not just that he doesn't miss a thing. He ordains all things. He ordains all things according to the purpose of his good will. When we connect our lives with Jesus, we are connecting our lives with the God who has perfectly ordered all things for his glory and our good. Listen, we're, not actually, uh, we're actually not on the right side of history when we embrace progressive values. We're on the right side of history when we embrace Jesus and his kingdom values because it's his will and his justice that will prevail in the end. Amen? Why is issue one such a big deal? There's all kinds of reasons. Let me give you just a couple here. It's because Jesus is sovereign, because he is king, and he has ordered this universe such that an unborn baby is a vulnerable human being needing protection. Listen, friends, a hundred years from now, we won't be on the wrong side of history. Our country or the rest of this world might, but we will be in the presence of Jesus, and in his presence, we will be on the right side of history. Now, listen, Jesus is not like every other human king. How unlike, how unlike he is to the Alexanders and Napoleons and Saddams and Kim Jong-uns of this world. I mean, what a contrast we see here. While other ancient kings ride in on war horses, proudly entering through the gates, cruel-lipped swords aloft, trailed by kings and princes in chains, Jesus, notice, humbly comes into Jerusalem. Yes, he has to come, he has come to take the throne, but he will begin his reign on a colt and from a cross. He is our humble king. And these are virtually the only qualities in his character that he ever draws attention to. Do you remember Matthew chapter 11, verse 28? It says something like, come to me. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here it is, listen. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. John's gospel tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he weeps over the city. He mourns over the city. He's sorrowful over their sin and their unbelief. His meekness becomes visible in his life. When catching sight of this city, the city Jerusalem, his heart bursts with sorrow and his eyes are filled with tears. Friends, don't miss the heart of Jesus as he's coming in on a colt. You know, critics have often portrayed Jesus as attempting to turn the wheel of history only to be eventually crushed by it himself. But in truth, Jesus was in control of every detail, every detail this day and on every day following this Passion Week. His riding on a donkey perfectly portrays his position as God's Messiah, humble and gentle in heart. But then Palm Sunday would lead to conflict and tension, which would precipitate his terrible death on Good Friday and his glorious resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so we can't miss where his sovereignty, where his kingship takes us. We can't help but notice that his detailed control is not a bad control because he will marshal his sovereignty in order to, as we learned last week, ransom sinners on that cross. He is a humble king, friends but he's also a good king. He's a benevolent king. The question, of course, is, are these uh, Jewish pilgrims, are the citizens of Jerusalem, are they going to understand all of this? 
Will they continue to misunderstand Jesus or will they begin to apprehend him? You know, today, everybody has an opinion about Jesus, you know? And generally, everyone in this country seems to kind of like Jesus, you know, maybe tolerate Jesus. He has good things to say. He's a wise teacher. The founding fathers seem to respect Jesus, and so maybe, you know, we should too. Everybody kind of likes Jesus, but not everyone truly worships him. Here's the deal, folks. You can't just like Jesus. What Jesus is doing as he walks into the city and as he prepares to cleanse the temple, we're going to see that in a couple weeks, and then as he heads to the cross, Jesus' agenda is crystal clear. He is starting to, here in Mark's gospel, draw a line in the sand. And what he's saying is you're either with me or you're against me. We can either worship this Jesus or we can ignore him. So only two real options. I want you to picture this sort of silly story with me. Imagine if, uh, I don't know, 100 of us decided to go to Washington, D.C. And, you know, a couple of you guys, you know, Andy and, uh, I don't know, Dave and Larry, let's say, they decided to kind of commandeer some black suburbans, you know, and uh, Dave and, and Leon and, you know, others decided to kind of put some some gear on their ears and dress up in suits, you know? And, uh, you know, there's this kind of big parade and there's kind of a motor motorcade and, and, and everybody's kind of going in. And then all of a sudden you look over and you see Pastor Drew and he's got a, a Bible in hand and, and Godwin's got his hand on that Bible. He's taking this oath and Jenny's dressed up more than usual. And wow, this is interesting, you know? You're like, what's, what's happening here, right? What's going on here? Well, Music is playing and the oaths are being said. All this is happening. Now, now, you can look at all of that and say, you know what? I like Godwin. You know, he's a good guy. Let's just go on with our lives. Well, either I am the president of the United States and your life must bend to that reality, or I'm flipping crazy. You've got to make that decision, right? Friends, either Jesus is crazy or he really is this sort of Messiah. Either Jesus is really who he is presenting here, the Son of God who has all authority over this universe and therefore your life and mine, and we owe him therefore our full allegiance, or he's just flipping crazy and you can ignore him. Those are the two options. So friends, how will you relate to Jesus? How will you relate to his claims that he is a suffering Messiah who has authority over all things, all things? That's the first point here. Here's the second, the Messiah, the people are receiving, looking at verses 7 through 11. So how do the people respond to this Jesus Starting in verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. <clears throat> Many people spread their clo clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Wow. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 
So what's the significance of the cloaks, the clothes, the branches, all this kind of stuff? Well, 2 Kings 9 tells us that cloaks symbolize submission to kings. It's kind of like rolling out the red carpet or something like that. Branches, palm branches, symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. So palm branches were connected to a prominent Jewish victory in the Maccabean revolt against the Romans. This is about 165 years prior to Palm Sunday. And notice what they were shouting as Jesus approached the city. They said, Hosanna, which means in Hebrew, save us. This was kind of sung responsively. You'll notice kind of the the different back and forth. This was an antiphonal kind of moment. So I'm actually, I want us to kind of try this, okay? So you guys here on this side, and then you guys here on this side. Now, look at your Bibles. Don't be looking at the elect standard version. That doesn't count right now. Okay, we're going to look at the CSB version, so open up that version if you have it, and we're going to look at, uh, we're, we're going to kind of try this out loud, okay? So if you're on this side, you're going to say, Hosanna. Okay, if you're on this side, you're going to respond saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then back to you guys, you're going to repeat and say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then the right side, Hosanna in the highest heaven. You see that? Okay. So let's try this. Here we go. Let's see who really works this well. Okay, let's see who's louder. All right. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Oh, yeah, that's good. You guys are really good. I, I, I'm not sure who I'd pick, but you guys did well. And this is kind of what they were experiencing. Back and forth, they would go, two different groups of people kind of uh, uh, almost like singing responsibly. We do that sometimes, or reading responsibly. That's what they were doing. And so the people seem to understand that Jesus is more than just kind of this traveling rabbi, right? They seem to be saying the right words. They seem to be doing the right things. But what did they mean by this? Was the Messiah Jesus presented the Messiah the people received? That's really the question of the day. Well, the answer is kind of, sort of, not really. A few clues. Well, first of all, John's gospel, this is um, John chapter 12, verse 16 says, they didn't fully understand this because that's pretty clear. But look at also what they were doing. Waving palm branches is like waving the U.S. flag at a parade. Putting their clothes down is something they did when the Maccabeans beat back the Romans. So the crowds are using this moment to celebrate Jesus as a political Messiah. Someone who can save them, not from their sins, but from those dirty Romans. Just like earlier in Mark, the crowd is caught up in the excitement. Oh, here comes Jesus. He's a a great guy. He's a great rabbi and miracle worker. Maybe he can save us from those Romans. Let's wave the Jewish flag. Let's put our cloaks down so he knows that when he goes after the Romans, we're with him. You see, they didn't know he had come to confront them and cleanse their temple and die for their sins. What is missing in this story is a repentant people who realize that the true problem isn't the Romans, it's themselves. Notice, one minute they rally around him, the next minute the crowd disperses. You get into verse 11, you're kind of like, where do they go? You know, they're shouting praises one minute, and then they're kind of done. Jesus walks in seemingly alone. Maybe his disciples were with him, we don't know. Where do they go? A lot of churchgoers are like this, you know, praising and singing. I'm into this. I don't quite understand all of it, but I'm really into this. This is fun. But then there comes a point 
when things kind of fizzle out. You can be excited for the party, but not ready for the cross. The story warns against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is not truly confessed in fanfare and at the party when everything is easy. Friends, he's truly confessed before a cross when there's a cost involved because total allegiance is required. But the crowds appear to be so sincere, Godwin. I mean, look at their sincerity. They're doing all this great stuff. They're excited about Jesus. Well, you can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, listen carefully, I can testify about the Jews that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do you hear that? Zeal and sincerity are admirable. We want those things, but zeal is only valuable if it is attached to the right truths about Jesus. This flies in the face, I know, one of our most cherished cultural maxims that sincerity in religion is all that matters. Paul says that sincerity didn't save the Jews. Now, what can we kind of gather from this? Well, first of all, it's human nature to misunderstand Jesus. It's what we are all prone to do. In fact, isn't this the heart of sin? To think a thought about Jesus that is untrue or slightly untrue, and then to live life ever so sincerely in light of that mistruth. Friends, this is why it's so crucial to have the right vision of Jesus, to have zeal, but to have a zeal that is in accordance with the real Jesus. The crowds don't have a correct vision of Jesus, and of course, we struggle with this too. Let's not hammer on the crowd too much. We can put ourselves right in their position, right? So we can call Jesus Lord, but then treat him like Santa Claus or Grandpa. We can call him Savior from my sins, but then we treat him like he exists to make me feel better, which means sweep those sins under the rug, please, Jesus. We can call Jesus God, but then treat him like he's our buddy. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, we may view Jesus as distant and aloof and, and too busy for me, never drawing near, never personal. That too is a poor vision of Jesus. Look at how he draws near in this, in this story. He draws near to Jerusalem, his own people. So do we have eyes to see Jesus as Jesus presents himself? Or do we tend to make Jesus into what we desire? our therapist, our butler, our lawyer, our buddy? Do we lay our cloaks down to a Jesus of our own making? That's the case. That's not real submission. That's what the crowds are doing here. So we can misunderstand Jesus. We can misunderstand Jesus, not only his position in our lives, but his mission on this earth. What's interesting about the Zechariah prophecy that uh, Dick read is it speaks of this Messiah having dominion hopefully you caught this, over all the nations. You see that? From sea to sea, it says. So Jesus picks a donkey to tell Jerusalem, hey, I'm the king of the nations. The Jews pick up palm branches to tell Jesus, hey, glad you're finally here. Come be the Jewish king and take care of the Romans. Talk about missing the point. It's like, you know, we all walk outside church, we get outside and we hear this loud, booming voice and it's the angel Gabriel and he announces that, Jesus is going to be coming 
to Milford on Main Street tonight at seven o'clock. And so we are all excited. We gather together and we, we, we you know, we pick a spot on Main Street and, and the pastors, you know, we start to hand out state of Ohio flags to wave as he walks down the street. What? Jesus is not the king of our state or this nation only. He is the king of all nations. That is the message Jesus conveys and the message the crowds missed. We are not citizens of America first and citizens of our heavenly kingdom second. It's the exact opposite of that. You know, we've got an American flag waving outside. I'm not saying we'd take it down tomorrow. But friends, any public demonstration that might even in the slightest convey to a Nigerian Christian or a Chinese Christian or an Iranian Christian who walks into our church that this is an American church first and not the church of Jesus first, I got a problem with that. I'll wave the U.S. flag. Some of you maybe have seen me do that at 4th of July parades. I love my country, but here at church, we got a different flag. We are citizens of a different kingdom. Sometimes we act like Jesus is here just for people like me. You know, good, solid, hardworking, middle-class Midwesterners or Americans like us. Or he came for people who are well put together and classy and articulate and educated. Or, or you know, he, he died on the cross, especially for those who can do the most for him. We never say that out loud, but our lives sometimes betray that notion The kinds of people we are drawn to or invest in, even within the church, betray that notion. No, these are the people, really, that Jesus is concerned about. For all of us, and that includes me, it's easy to have a narrow vision of Jesus. He's the Jesus of my family and my friends and my church. But the scope of Jesus' mission and his reign is global. Do we have this perspective today, friends? How globally minded are we? Do we long to see more people come under the lordship and kingship of Jesus, not just from our neighborhoods and offices and my buddy group and schools, but, but, but also from every tribe, tongue, and nation? I want you to notice how the passage ends on a seemingly dark note very anticlimactic. Look at verse 11 with me. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) What? This huge party and like it disperses. And then what happens is just Jesus in the temple. And he's like, and he just walks out of the whole city. It's nuts, right? I mean, this is called the triumphant entry. It doesn't feel like that. The whole scene comes to nothing. The crowd dispenses, as we talked about before. The party's over. And Jesus goes to that temple by himself. The people of Jerusalem really have no idea what he's doing. They don't realize what Jesus is about to do as, as he's about to kind of go on this mission, right, in Jerusalem. He's not coming to overthrow Rome. He's got a temple to cleanse. He's got a cross to bear, and the nations are on his mind. So he looks around this temple in verse 11, and you expect him to kind of get excited, do something. I mean, this is the temple of God, right? But there's no reaction, nothing. Just leaves. But he'll be back. Watch what he does when he comes back. 
you know, by the end of this week, the temple will be brought down. The center of everything the Jews held dear will become irrelevant in God's eyes. A new center of their religion would emerge, and it would, of course, be himself. And looming even larger, beyond the temple cleansing, of course, is the cross. At the cross, we find woven together in beautiful, in beautiful irony, both judgment and salvation. For at the cross, Jesus would be judged on behalf of repentant sinners. The temple system would be broken because Jesus would become the once-for-all sacrifice. Judgment on Jesus would mean salvation for Christians. And Jesus would then do what? He would rise triumphantly from the grave. And and there would be a, a few days, maybe a few weeks, where he would start to give instructions to his disciples. And the final words he gave to his disciples, the Great Commission, they would correspond to Zechariah's prophecy and, and his Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. You know, it's like he starts to fill up in their minds what they had seen earlier in the week. In the next age, when we gather together with all the saints across time and we join with them in unhindered worship, Who will be sitting near you at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Who will be holding the hymn sheets with you as you offer praises to the Lamb? Will it be grandma and best friend and daughter and father and pastor and mentor and teacher? Yeah, and that's going to be magnificent. That will be a glorious reunion of souls, right? Our happiness will double over. But as you look around... There will also be that German man who, unbeknownst to you, generations ago proclaimed Christ to your relatives in Germany. There will be a sweet Bengali woman who, after receiving Christ through your church's missionaries, began praying for your church, whose prayers were effective over you. There will be a faithful Iranian brother who converted in your lifetime, whose Christian life really didn't amount to much because he was slaughtered soon for his faith after he became a Christian, and he's holding those hymn sheets with you. Or maybe it's not just hymn sheets. Maybe we're going to learn some new gospel songs, patterned after the scriptures, of course, but sung in an exuberant African tradition, or a thoughtful Hungarian style, or a strange yet compelling Tibetan style. Maybe you'll even dance unto the Lord as your African sister teaches you the steps. Friends, are you ready for this? Are you living now in view of this kind of global heavenly reality that will be your forever existence? Jesus had all this in mind as he rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. Now, can you think of the place where Jesus is the least misunderstood? Maybe you're thinking, okay, churches our church maybe, or maybe like a really, really good church, the best church in, on the planet, like that church is going to very little kind of misunderstand Jesus. Well, yeah, maybe, but I think the place where Jesus is least misunderstood, in fact, where he's not misunderstood, is the throne room of God. That's where there is no misunderstanding. So I want you to listen now to Revelation 5. I'm going to close with this. I want us to catch sight of those who are worshiping the real Jesus 
with no misunderstanding. When Jesus took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they together will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Let's take a moment now to ponder this passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.